Hey, Tourpreneurs, it's Mitch Bach. And just a quick note before we begin today's episode, Tourpreneur is currently sponsored by Google. We're thankful for their support of our community, and we are offering with them a completely free course helping you unlock the power and potential of Google's Things to Do program, which is specifically helping tour operators add their tours to Google in new ways that gives you new exposure and more direct bookings. To learn more, go to tourpreneur.com slash Google. And as always, show notes, more resources, links to our newsletter, our business coaching community, and so much more are available on tourpreneur.com. Now to the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Tourpreneur Podcast. I am Mitch Bach, and I could not be more excited about my guest today, Dacker Keltner. He is a psychologist who works at the University of California, Berkeley. And I have a dear friend who's a psychologist here in New York, and I told him how excited I was that I was meeting him. And he goes, oh, yeah, the emotion guy. He had your emotion textbook in Nice. college. And so Dacker, just as a way of getting started in our conversation today, I was wondering if you could tell us how you how you came to become the guy that my friend recognized as the emotion guy. Yeah. Well, um, I grew up in a very emotional household in a very emotional time. Um, I, um, I was raised by, I now understand, uh, people who hewed to the re- philosophy of romanticism you know, trust your feelings and your intuitions and your passions. Uh, my mom um, taught uh, romanticism at a public university, and my dad was a painter and loved Goya and Francis Bacon and all the passionate painters. And I grew up in the late 60s, you know, in, in uh, a hotspot of the cultural revolutions, Laurel Canyon, L.A. So I just felt like, God, the, all of the world, everything we care about is about emotion, you know, the politics we care about, our identities, the art, et cetera. And, um, but I had kind of a scientific tendency, which runs in my family, my mom's family. Um, and when I got to grad school, you know, uh, it was kind of the, the heyday of the cognitive revolution in the eighties, you know, Danny Kahneman and, and, um, Amos Tversky and others, and there was no discussion of emotion. And so scientifically, uh, the real turning point for me, Mitch, was I went to a talk by Paul Ekman, who had figured out how to measure facial expression, and I was blown off the map. You know, I was just like, I can't believe there are objective measures of emotion in the face and in the voice and in the body. And so I, I dove into that scientific literature for the past 35 years. Interesting. There's a couple of names there that are actually really resonant with me and my work uh, yeah. in travel designing. And yeah. uh, I'm interested to kind of dive into them. First of all, one is Paul Ackman. And yeah. uh, um, I talk about him sometimes in the terms of the most core or deepest human emotions that are universal that we all yeah. kind of share. And one of those is the emotion of surprise. And it always yeah. surprises me to think of that, that actually hidden within who we are as humans are mm. these built-in ways to mm unlock um, real easy moments of delight just by tapping into those. Wonderful. Yeah. And, you know, so over the course of my career, what I've done, Mitch, is use new methodologies, new measures of the face, the voice, touch, new statistical approaches to kind of expand Ekman's 
paradigm of six basic emotions. Now we have we know there are about twenty. Uh, and you're right, you know, surprise, and, and then I do a lot of work on awe, which is close to surprise. Uh, surprise is this delightful emotion, and it's paradoxical because it can be both um, really delightful and pleasurable, and it can also be scary and, you know, and anger producing. So it has this very interesting quality of, of uh, we don't know what direction it'll go, and, and but it, what we do know is surprise just, it's like this you know, jumpstart switch to your brain. It's like, wow, I got to rethink things. And so it's a, I'm glad you're cultivating surprise in the work that you do. We need more of it. Yeah. Well, that connects with uh, the other name that sparked something in me, which was Daniel Kahneman. Yeah. And uh, thinking about the peak end rule, you know, our community, our travel designers, and one of the sad facts of our uh, travel community is you might have created an eight-day tour uh, that goes to all of these incredible places, but the traveler ends up remembering a peak moment. Yeah. They remember how they feel over time and might remember a single or a couple of moments from that trip. Yeah. Danny Kahneman, you know, Nobel Prize winner, longtime collaborator with Amos Tversky. Danny was at Berkeley. Amos was at Stanford. I TA'd for Amos, uh, and it was an honor to see his mind at work, you know, just thinking about what they call these heuristics and very intuitive principles that govern consciousness in some sense. And Danny's work on peak end is so fascinating that, you know, how we represent experiences. If you spend time in prison or you're out on a first date or you do a trip or you're teaching a class, you know, it's like you look for those peak moments and the ending matters, you know, and what a interesting, uh, a deep idea that he was so gifted at, at revealing. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 an exciting idea, and yet it's a terrifying idea because yeah. it means that yeah. what what you might do as crafting travel is not simply about plugging in the pieces and making sure not at all budget. It's 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 about emotion. It's about your 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 life's work. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And I think everybody who's listening is like, you know, I I was really excited. I was going to see my daughter in Barcelona, and I had my wallet pickpocketed. <laughs> And that defined the trip. You know, it was like this peak moment and like, and uh, so we got to watch out for those peaks. Yeah. Yeah. Good or bad. You're absolutely right. So your, 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 your current work has really coalesced around this word awe, which yeah. is kind of an incredible word because I think we all recognize it and yet it'd be maybe hard for us to put our finger on exactly what it is. And so I'm wondering if uh, you could tell us a little bit about this word and how you arrived at at this being so important for us as humans. Oh man, you know, I, I mean, I I remember Mitch when I was joining Paul Ekman's lab and I was you know 27 and just getting my PhD and you know here's like the this icon you know this icon of the field and I was like I was at his house and you know we were looking out at San Francisco I was like what should I study you know and he said you should study awe you know. And I was like, man, there's a science that could study awe. I mean, that it just, it almost get, brings tears now. Um, and that's what we've been doing for 15 years. And that's what the book's about. It's like awe, you know, defining the word, the concept is an emotion. And you're right to frame this in terms of emotion. We feel when we encounter really vast things, most, most typically, that are beyond our frame of reference or our mysteries. And you go, wow, you know, what is this ritual that I'm observing in Japan around a, a death, right? And it seems past the whole community's involved, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, to further 
we can we can go in many directions to really you know bring richness to that definition you can think about the body right with awe we tear up we get goosebumps which are fascinating you get this warmth in your chest um we um with awe it shapes it shifts your sense of consciousness right you feel humble and open to the world you feel small and like the world is so much bigger than what you you ordinarily care about so what a what an incredible emotion to to bring to our awareness i'm wondering in your travels i know you've been mm. in the himalayas recently yeah, and elsewhere yeah. Are there moments of awe that come to mind that were sort of unlocked through uh, a travel moment rather than just being at home? Oh my God. You know, and you know, it's, I mean, it's the fundamental reason in some sense we travel, right? Mm. Humans, unlike a lot of species, are voyagers. We're, we're wanderers. You know, there are genes that are related to wandering. It's just part of how we, part of our signature strength is to do that. And, you know, I was lucky. I had these unconventional parents. And so, you know, we we did in one early awe was this incredible, we hopped into our VW bus, 1968, you know, and those weren't very good cars back then. They tended to break down on the in the desert. And we just drove straight into the Rockies from LA. And just like my brother and I were like, wow, the awe of thunderstorms and mountains and a drunk guy who caught this giant trout, you know, and and the rivers and rafting, you know, it was just free form awe. Um, I, you know, I've had more, you know, every year um, I go backpacking with my daughter, Natalie, and it's just full on awe, you know, and it's, we gripe at each other, we get mad at each other, we fight, you know, we, we, but there are moments of awe that are just, I remember one in particular that I still, um, I still, it changed my whole philosophy of life where, forgive me for going on a bit, but I was in Bhutan with my, a dear friend, 2008. We were uh, visiting these large snow cranes in this glacial valley, and the, the people there, the Bhutanese, said, you know, they will fly to Siberia, and before they do, they go to this, they fly over this temple that you're going to visit around the prayer pole fly, three times and then fly to Siberia. And as a Western skeptical scientist, I was like, oh, that's so sweet, you know, that you would think that. And so my friend and I are at this temple. All the monks start like chanting and getting excited and moving around and bringing their instruments into the prayer room. And and I we start to hear these cranes barking or calling. And lo and behold, they flew around the prayer pole three times and went to Siberia, you know, and, the, and we were in this chanting and it was this... I was like, you know, wow, look at what the Western mind misses that travel opens up us up to. So almost every trip, you know, Mitch, is life changing for for the for the reason of all. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 funny to me, this goes back to uh our our discussion of surprise, which is that a lot of these are are moments that can't be concocted and may never be repeated again. And those yeah. are the ones that are often the most cherished. As uh, as a as a leader of a community of tribal creators, yeah. I think we're more interested in the side. Of course, we're interested in that, but we're also interested in the side of of figuring out what is at play in these, and yeah. can we create these? Can we build yeah. these into the way that we're designing a travel experience? Yeah, and and thank you for asking that question. You know, uh, in writing this book, all um, you know, and, and it's been a moment, you know, of like wow, a lot of people are thinking like, that's what my work is about. I, I work at a museum or 
I teach in prisons or I'm a medical doctor dealing with palliative care. And it's like, there's so much awe in so much of our life and our work. And, and one of the questions that people have gotten to that I've started to really actively engage uh, in audiences with, be it mayors of cities or, you know, people who run museums, uh, Carnegie Hall is like, how do you design awe into a, a, a realm? And, and there are clear ways to do it. We have a whole program now to design awe into classrooms that we're launching this month at the Greater Good Science Center. And it is pause, clear your mind, don't rely on quick labels, take some deep breaths, and then some simple perceptual or, or almost, you know, challenges. Like think about the origins of what you're experiencing. Think about the big thing that you're relating to right now. You know, wow, I'm in the Alhambra and I'm looking at these incredible mosaics. What does it mean to you? Where does that come from, right? Um, relate to vast things. Our relation to vastness is big. Uh, one of the themes that emerges in awe that's really important is to think about systems, right? Sit awe in some fundamental sense is about the systems that you become aware of. When I had that experience in Bhutan, I suddenly realized like these people have a, a philosophy of life where they understand migratory patterns and, and music that comes together, those systems. So there's a lot we can do to design on into our work. I think for starters, you had mentioned sometimes we get a kind of a Western Cartesian yeah. like desire to like yeah. think our heads need to be the answer to everything. Exactly, I need to say the right thing. I need to get yeah. like I'll, I'll tell you know I'll tell the right bit of information and then and then I can create awe. But yeah. what you would describe at the Alhambra was just creating the conditions of a bodily presence. Ex you know. And, and I can't tell you um, how powerful it is just to pause, be quiet, be quiet. You know, if words come in, oh, what century is this? We're all doing that all the time. Like push those to the side, take a breath and like start to sense what's vast around you and connect it to the self, to your body, you know. And, and if you just do that, we just published a paper, Mitch, I'm really proud of medical doctors, nurses during the pandemic in hospitals, people dying. And all, that's what they did for one minute a day. Pause, breathe, quiet, and think about the, the big thing that you're part of in that moment. And then boom, you know, it benefited them in terms of their well-being, anxiety, and depression. So it's designed it into, with the body and mind. Yeah, it reminds me of the way that you start your book on... Uh, with kind of a description of the default self, the self that we sort of yeah. carry around with us every day. And it almost seems like some of our job as a travel <laughs> designer needs to be about figuring out how do we snap people out of that def yeah. the default self. Yeah, you know, the and, and this, you know, this awe, when people feel awe, like in the spiritual writing of the last seven or 800 years, People would say, like, I am nothing, I'm, I dissolve. You know, in the psychedelic literature, ego death. Uh, in the religious literature, it's, you know, I, I'm really part of a divine force. There's no me here. Um, and, and we've documented that empirically, even down to the brain, where it's the default mode network, which is all the voice of your ego quiets down during awe. And, and subjectively or phenomenologically, what it is, is it's this voice you hear. I have a loud one. I'll bet you do too. <laughs> you know, like, okay, what are you doing right now? What's your goal? What's your schedule like? What's, what are your priorities today? You know, um, 
what do people think of you? What's your reputation? That's all really important, but it, it keeps us away from the sublime. You know, it's the antithesis. And thankfully, experiences of awe kind of quiet that all down. You know, they make you suddenly aware of like, my God, you know, the light on this river in Burma, another awe experience for me near these Buddhist temples, uh, that's, that's almost divine, right? So yeah, so part of our challenge in any place is to not be overrun by the default self. Well, and let me translate that into practical terms for our yes. audience. They, uh, uh, you know, our uh, my community they want they want to run fantastic businesses. Of course, they want to transform yes. people, and part of that means they want great reviews. They want uh, yeah. happy customers at the end. And it almost seems to me like you're mentioning you're you're, you're speaking right now that uh, we need to calm down that part of. Of, of the traveler's brain that is like just judging. It's it's almost too aware of not the moment, but of themselves judging the moment. Oh, this tour guide's going on for too long. Oh, these streets are dirty. Whereas the 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 transcending of that, the yeah. awe, you know, like injecting onto that is essentially quieting that part down and giving them a moment of feeling like they're part of an incredible group. They're in, in, in a fantastic moment. They'll never have this again mm. and cherish it. One of the really humbling things about uh, this work and, and, and sometimes it's misconstrued is like, you don't want to turn a trip or your work or your, you know, your time with your friends or family into awe all the time, right? That would, right. <laughs> that'd be a hippie commune, which didn't function that well. What, what you want are moments of awe. You want to just pause and look mm -hmm. for it and then carry on with your, your structured day, you know, and, and absolutely, you know, you think of the default self, it's almost like a checklist. It's always like, okay, check that off, check that off, check that off. Oh, I saw that painting or went to this museum, but we also need to open up to, uh, mystery and unfettered experience. And like, wow, you know, when my dad, uh, you know, I write about this in the book cause he was a painter, uh, Richard Keltner, he is a painter. Um, he took me to the Louvre and we're, my brother and I were sprinting around doing the try <laughs> like teenage thing. And he said, hold on guys, you know? We were in the room of the Dutch masters. He's like, just stand and just look at these guys and see what they're doing, you know? And suddenly it was like, oh my God, you know? So um, just pause, give yourself five minutes of all. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole movement now called slow looking. Is there really? Yes, absolutely. Where is, tell me where I can find that. That's amazing. The, the uh, I'm, I'm blanking on their name right now, but there's a Harvard art history professor who um, begins their intro to art history class by requiring that their students go out to the art gallery and spend three hours looking at a single work of art. And what happens is they That's start awesome. obviously just judging, criticizing the activity themselves, getting yeah. bored. They cycle through all of this stuff and yeah. about 30 minutes in, and then it just keeps increasing until yeah. a moment where yeah. they're seeing things they just didn't see because they didn't spend that time entering into it um, in the same way. One of the, you know, how do we design all connective vastness, think about systems, uh, slow it, slow looking, slow observation. Mm -hmm. When um, part of the book is about my grief in losing my younger brother, Rolf, who I, he was my companion in awe through life. We had this incredible brotherhood when you're apart. And part of our childhood was traveling and wandering through nature. I grew up after Laurel Canyon in the foothills of the Sierras. And, um, and afterwards I just, it was all slow looking, you know, it's just like mm -hmm. looking at the sky, looking at bodies of water, you know, for 30 minutes and, mm -hmm. and 
what a reminder in travel and in life, right? Just to slow it down and look. It reminds me of uh, not exactly a colleague, but someone who spent a fair amount of time out in San Francisco and Berkeley, uh, Alan Ginsberg, the beat poet who uh-huh. said you own twice as much rug if you're twice as aware of the rug. And <laughs> that there's this rush, like you said, for checklists for more, 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 but and and also for experience creators, right? We yeah. add one more bullet point to the itinerary and we can sell it for more because it's a better trip now that we're yeah. in more city, one more thing. And I think it's a real, I mean, it's a, it's ultimately to me, for me, a scientist and empirical question, like would slow travel be better, you know, cover fewer things. And you probably have a lot of opinions, but we can, we, the great thing about this conversation and the concepts that science allied to it is, is we can do it quickly, right? We can do it within five minutes. You can slow look and and have a great experience. Absolutely. Uh, you know, we've we've made you've made several references now to Buddhism and to religion. Yeah, and it, yeah. It, it's it's absolutely true that yeah religions had a lot of time to perfect awe. Yeah, uh, a lot of trial and error over the years. Yeah, and you can kind of leave you know uh, dogma aside and just look at pra- the practices and. I'm wondering if you could tell me sort of what does religion get right about the creation of senses of awe? Oh, man. You know, I it's in, it's so interesting, and, and I, I thought so hard about that question writing this book, which is I, I, w- I was raised without religion. I'm not even sure, you know, about 80% of Americans are spiritual. They really believe in some force that animates experience, that transcends rational understanding. I, I kind of think I am after... Uh, some experiences in my brother's grieving my brother's loss um but you know digging it uh mystical awe the is william james it's emerson it's the bhagavad-gita it's buddhism it's everywhere christianity julian of norwich great uh spiritualist in the 14th century um and and i humbly and now i teach this niche to my Berkeley students who are skeptical, hard-nosed, you know, moving away from religion. That generation is really moving away from religion. And I say, religion gets a lot right. They get music right. They get chanting right. They get iconography right. They get slow-looking right. They get being physically present with others. They get ritual right. They get us, and I love the idea of the sacred, you know. Um, I can go into Saint-Germain des Prés. I was a college student for a little while in Paris. My mom lived there. Man, I get into that cathedral. If there's music and the light and the color, it's, you know, uh, it's spiritual. So they get a lot right. And and I think Alain de Botton was really right, which is we need religion for atheists, right? People like Casper Turkile in How We Gather, same thing. He went to Harvard Divinity School. Like, man, this is one of the great uh, human institutions. They have music, right? So let's, Let's take that and let's make it part of our day uh, and we'll derive the benefits of it. So I think we should be asking that question. How would you do it with travel? Can travel be a spiritual experience or should it be? Well, it's so, I mean, it's so funny. I grew up extremely Catholic and moved away from it. And what's funny now is that I find myself returning more and more and more and more every day to the concepts that Catholicism got right. The concepts of liturgy, right? Of the idea that uh, of the sacred and the profane, that when you enter a space, you mark it with time. And I think of yeah. some of the profound walking tours, ghost yeah. tours that I've taken. Wow. And it was marked by 
a guide who sounded a bell and told us now we are in the 18th century. Wow. And just that that intonation, that re- that physical yeah. resonance, that embodied resonance, and then just a signal that we're somewhere different now. Religion, yeah. that's that's what every church does. That's what every sacred exactly. space does. Um, a sense of the communal, yeah. of, 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 of resonating in, in synchronicity with, with the group of people. And, and to me, this is one of the most powerful opportunities that group travel creators have. You might be I leading did. a food tour of 10 people or a bus tour yeah. for 25 days across yeah. Europe. You have a group around you. Yeah. What, what is the power of a group in terms of crafting awe or these transcendent moments? It's profound. And, and you know, in the book, um, I write about what we call the eight wonders that produce awe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that came out of a study of 26 different countries. We gathered stories of awe, derived this taxonomy or classification. And, and we've already been talking about, you know, paintings and nature and, and uh, um, religion being three that we've talked about. And one of them is collective shared movement, you know, mm-hmm. what, what Emile Durkheim, this French sociologist called collective effervescence, which is love that phrase. Same here, man. Once you start moving with other people and vocalizing with others, and then you're sharing attention, right. Uh, and then suddenly you are thinking about symbolic things. Uh, you are very o- open to awe and it's, the wonderful thing about it con- in contemporary terms, Mitch, is like, you know, you find it everywhere. You can find it at a sporting event, at a musical venue, in dancing, in, I love big Zocalos in Mexico and plazas in, in plazas in Europe because they're collective, mm-hmm. right? They're shared movement um, and they have no religion to them. And suddenly you're like, I feel transcendent in this space. Uh, and so you can do a lot with collective uh, groups, uh, like you say, and I hope you guys are. Yeah, uh, you're right. I mean, singing, chanting, yeah. uh, j- just some of those, some of those ways in which you feel just very quickly larger than yourself, more, more vocal than your singular voice. Um, um, even, which even, you know, Durkheim was really interesting in that. And I did this, uh, I just taught this retreat at Esalen and we did a couple of these versions where even just standing together and all looking at the same thing intentionally, right? Mm. Where suddenly you sync up, you know, your awareness and your bodies and what you're looking at and consciousness. Uh, And what we know from the science is just doing that, you know, collective intentional appreciation. Your neurophysiologies are synchronizing. You, You feel a sense of common cause and goodness. And it's powerful to build that into a, a travel experience we're all attuned not facing each other even in ourselves exactly. but but exactly. the the vastness the the enough exactly. that, that reminds me i mean you know I've, I've had 20 years um leading groups uh wow. all stripes around the world um and i you know i go back to sometimes the 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 moments of awe for me that i was kind of reflecting on before this yeah. um were they were quite simple i got well, out of the bus with a group of 30 people it, it just rained there was a full rainbow and there was a giant field and I got out the little, my little speaker and it played somewhere over the rainbow and we all got silently out of the bus and just stared at that rainbow and listened to that, listened to that nostalgic song, which probably resonated with our own singular pasts. But together we were all looking out at that rainbow and didn't say a word. And 
they all marked that it was the best part of a yeah. 10 day experience. I just got goosebumps. That's amazing. That's it. Yeah. It's, and so easy, right? And so human. So and that's, that's what we're meant to do. Yeah. Is, 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 is it fair to say that actually your, 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 your question should be, what can I do to be the most human in this moment or the most fully human in this moment and bring that out of my guests? Yeah. And you know, that was Einstein on awe. He said, you know, this is the, the, the fundamental human emotion is our love of mystery and, and pondering the vastness of, of experience. And, and so many, you know, it's interesting, Mitch, just to, you know, I have talked about awe to tens of thousands of people and a lot, when I ask people like, tell me a story of awe, a lot of it is travel, you know, <laughs> is being somewhere different and, uh, how great to think about this together. You know, you bring up the, the story of the loss of your brother, which you cover in your book. Um, yeah. it, it connects with one of the, one of the kind of wonders of life, as you call it, uh, storytelling. Yeah. Like what's, 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 what kinds of stories are unlocking this sense? Cause it's not every story. And yeah, I think the, the definition of awe gets us, you know, I mean, you could think about the content of the story, which it's, it's likely to be about, you know, a, a spirit or a, a person of moral beauty, which we haven't talked about, um, who, you know, I visited Gandhi's ashram and just when you're steeped in Gandhi, you're, you're, you're prone to awe or a natural event. But then I think that the structure of the story, no matter what the content is, um, is back to, you know, vastness and mystery that awe-inspiring stories, ultimately awe is about mystery. It's like you, you have the experience, you, you gain new insight, but then you don't understand, you look, you're curious about more, you know, Darwin, you know, when he, he writes his theory of evolution, one of the biggest ideas a human has had, he, he just, it all, it just, opened up further mysteries. When I saw that experience in Bhutan, uh, I had another awe experience in India on a trip where I felt my brother's voice in the sky. I was having this awe experience. That catapulted me to more inquiry, right? And, and the urge to explore. So I think the stories of awe have to be about vast wonders, but they really structurally have to have some mystery in it. They have to prompt the reader to be like, wow, you know, I don't, I got to be thinking more about this or I got to go feel it. Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. Mystery, it, and it doesn't need to always be mystery with a capital M. No. It can, it can be just simply making sure that your traveler sometimes feels like they don't know what's next. So exactly. they're on that, they're on a journey. They're exactly. Uh, even if it's just down a couple of streets in New York city or wherever. Yeah. And back to surprise, you know, just a little bit of surprise awaits it. Well, and that's, that's, that's the, you know, that, that's what I was mentioning when I was talking about how the world's become increasingly religious to me or enchanted. Uh, it's because what is a revelation but a surprise, right? It yeah. doesn't need to be an angel descending and delivering me, you know, golden tablets. It's just uh, the revelation of 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 these moments of either collective effervescence or the surprise of moral beauty. You know, you, I think of um, I saw on TikTok the other day just it popped up this story of this teenage girl who uh was um she was going uh, uh she had noticed um a student sitting alone at school mm -hmm. uh at lunch and so she developed she created a club basically where uh nobody would sit alone again and there it was just a wow. club of fellow students who uh would notice around the lunchroom or around school um anybody that looked kind of alone and they'd 
go up and they'd befriend them and ask them about themselves and try That's to incredible. Tell them. Yeah. It created this network effect of just generosity. And yeah, wow. Um, what's what's going on? It's it, it speaks to what you said, moral beauty, the surprise well, of yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, exactly. And, and, you know, what a spectacular example, Mitch, because moral beauty is when we're moved to awe. So worldwide, it's the most common source of awe, even though you wouldn't have anticipated that. And it's when you're moved to tears and goosebumps and chills and awe by someone's kindness or courage or overcoming obstacles and sometimes excellence, like, you know, the incredible sprinter uh, in the Olympics. And, you know, it it's... It, your example is exactly the power of the story of moral beauty. It's like she sees something, she feels moved, she does it. And then in her in acting of it and sharing, suddenly other people are inspired and off you go, man. You have social movements. You know, there's, yeah. you know, new thinking in about the really important social moral movements of our times that it begins like the Vietnamese monk who set himself on fire because the horrors of Vietnam were too profound for him to bear and suddenly everybody was like for me too we can't be doing this so it's your example is is a spectacular testimony to how we need to tell these stories of moral beauty and traveling is full of them right yeah when you go to places you're like wow you know my visiting Gandhi's ashram so obvious like I can't I'm holding sand that he may have meditated on um it's incredible yeah you know when I when I teach storytelling to tour guides, the first distinction I make is between delivering information and yeah. delivering emotion. And wow. you're you're, you're going to open you're going to open your mouth no matter what. But there's a real question to well, what are you what are you doing with the words that you're using? Or, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, as a psychologist, you're probably um, much more deeply aware of the forgetting curve and the way that you know we're basically designed to forget almost everything, and we. We forget most of what a tour guide is going to tell us about the information about a site, uh, but those moments of storytelling that are focused on asking yourself what kind of emotion can inspire you know my group of travelers to go and be changed and to change the world. Yeah, that that changes what you think you're doing. And I'll tell you, I do this now all the time, Mitch, and your audience I think would really love to do this. Is I I really learned this actually. Uh, and it's revealing for travel in, um, during the pandemic, I did a lot of work with medical doctors, nurses, cause it was chaos, you know, 30% understaffed, a million people died, COVID vaccines, ah, horrible time. And I started, I just would start when I'd work with 50 doctors, I'd be like, let's share stories of moral beauty, you know? Mm. And they'd be like, what are you talking about? Oh, man, this is all about death. Wait a minute. There was this patient who got to see their grandchild and hugged me and said, life is incredible. It's everywhere, you know? And so, uh, it's a, it's a great frame, uh, a great prompt for a storytelling, uh, to really drill into what, what is that peak of, uh, travel that we're looking for? Yeah. Yeah. I love that so much. It's, it, it speaks also to the idea that that collective effervescence, that sort of buzzing and humming together can also come from a sense of our shared humanity, perhaps through either yeah. you know moral excellence, but also yep. through just expressing vulnerability, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I know the minute you spoke about the loss of your brother, probably yeah. sympathetically, thousands of listeners had a moment of thinking about loss in their lives. Yeah. It you know um, 
one of the you know um, deep truths that I that you know I've always been guided by from Buddhism is that first noble truth that there's just vulnerability and suffering in life. Um, it's the one of the fundamental laws of living forms is you know growth uh, and decay and death, birth, growth, decay, and death, and that's just that's law, law like. And out of that, you know, we all have experiences of loss and like I did losing my brother Rolf. And by the way, I found enormous awe and a reframing of my view of life and death traveling. Um, I, I hiked Mont Blanc and hiked, the, you know, in the Sierras where my brother and I went, went to India, et cetera. Um, but the, the deeper philosophical point is, um, is just really humans when we suffer and when we are facing uncertainties or traumas in our past or we lose loved ones or get a disease ourselves we have we we find wonder in it and we find awe and a lot of it's horrifying and painful not to be denied but but routinely humans look for awe to understand you know the near-death experience literature that i review in the book the mind when it's about to cease feels awe right it's like what is this and what is life and i think a lot of our really peak experiences in travel you know you think about uh eat what is it eat pray love or you know is you know is like i'm gonna go do this out of suffering and learn how to be a more enriched person uh and voyaging and travel get us to it and in and and i think awe is a magic ingredient you know, ingredient of that it, it, it goes back to the, that those religious terms like yeah. death and resurrection, that yeah. sense of rebirth that requires that, yeah. that, 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 that darkness. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, probably on, on, on the thoughts of many in our community today is yeah. kind of the, the looming threats and opportunities around what technology is, is, yeah. is doing to change how a travel experience happens. And I yeah. think of things like, I know. AI tour guides uh, with, you know, words in our ears. I think oh, of um, yeah. self-driving vehicles, the uh, the endless ways in which this kind of mechanization of yeah. experience is, is, is removing a lot of what, a lot of what was the, 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 the purview of the human. And I agree. Just wondering where, where can that stop? Like what, what on a psychological level does being with other humans do like where's the moat what can't technology do? oh my god you know and and it's so important you raise it because you know the people i would really worry about is the next generation right the oh, yeah. the 15 year olds right now who yeah they like ai and, and ai is going to do a lot of good is doing a lot of good in the world's here yeah we're not uh, demonizing it yeah Absolutely. yeah but 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 you asked the fundamental question and i'll tell you you know i've done a lot of consulting uh, Facebook 2010 to 2014, Google assistance, you know, I've done a lot of work on that and cut and, and come to the conclusion, like there are fundamental things that tech will never be able to do. Um, it will never be able to really touch your skin <laughs> it, and in an embrace, it will never be able to produce, uh, a smell in a place, right? It will never, uh, be able to create um, what you and I just talked about with collective effervescence, like, wow, I'm with all these humans and my mind sees these physical bodies and has a sense of group or we, 
uh, it 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 will, and then you could get more philosophical at the meta level. It it there's a lot where we really children have this very deep intuition of the real and the simulated uh, or fake. It's just a fundamental notion, and so tech is simulated, you know, and it just can't do, you know, when you have an incredible experience in traveling and you hug someone and you're crying, that's, that's, that's human, you know? Uh, so, you know, it, I think, um, I would make that argument forcefully that we really, we, there's something fundamental about experience that needs other humans to be creating it for us and with us and we for them. And it's irreplaceable, you know. So, um, and and you know, I I don't know if that will be a, a argument to be made empirically, but I think uh, as a ethically, I think we and the writer strike in Hollywood did that. You know, mm. we got to have people mm. writing stories. Uh, a thousand percent. I mean, you you stole the words out of my mouth. There's like a moral imperative there. It's not simply. Yeah. We're, we need to be as proscriptive as descriptive about what this is. Yeah, and, and absolutely. This is what this is what we value about being alive. Yeah, it is. And you know, and you you think about, and I think that ultimately is the the one of the criteria you could work with, which is like, does your experience come from something that's alive and that reproduces, or, or you know has the opportunity, and you know, and uh, a a. Um, AI generated, you know, hollow, you know, avatar that guides your travel experience isn't, and it, I don't think it's just, it's not in the same category. When you look at a movie like Her from back in the day, yeah. where you have a you have a lonely man, yeah, who falls in love with a voice, is that getting close to overcoming that kind of that kind of sim simulacrum kind of barrier or? Or, or it, it's everywhere, you know, there's AI generate, you know, this music art, yeah. you know, there are AI sex dolls and, you know, it's just like, it's, it's, um, we get very close, but, I, but I think you're right, Mitch. And I think it's like, we have to make the moral categorical claim that this has to be a human, you know, a teacher has to be a human, a travel guide has to be a human, a professional athlete has to be a human, um, a doctor has to, for the most part, be a human. And um, so I think it's, um, you know, I could design the science that would tell you that all of those cases, things go better with the human as opposed to the, the AI-generated entity. Um, and and we got to make that case. Seems like there's built into that a design imperative for my yeah. travel community to make sure that they're designing the most human experiences possible, that they're... Yeah they're not just delivering information it's not rote that they need to design the irreplaceable yeah yeah absolutely well put Decker is there out of the thousands of uh, <laughs> responses that you received uh, during your during your study and probably since the publication of your book awe is there a, a, a favorite moment of awe that comes to your mind that that you received wow um one category, uh, you know, and I get emails on a daily basis. Um, the death thing is real, you know. Uh, I found awe uh, watching my brother pass away. I lost it in grief, and I found it again in thinking about life. And, you know, uh, I remember in particular uh, somebody writing me about 
the loss of his sister, I lost a brother and he was like, um, you know, this, this, your, this transformed grief, which is one of the big events of life that is hard to do. Um, and then I was really inspired, um, by a woman in Colorado. You know, I did, I write about some of the work I did in prisons where I found a lot of humanity and awe. And, uh, she's like, it's everywhere. It's like the growth of humanity out of redemption. And she's teaching it now, you know, in prison. So uh, that was really gratifying in the, mm. you know, finding on the, in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. That's great. You know, but that's, <laughs> there's a lot of, but in the detention center, different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But finding it in the places, uh, that you wouldn't ordinarily cultivate it really meant a lot to me. So thanks for asking that question. Yeah. Um, Dr. Keltner, thank you so much for taking the time to share your, mm. your research and your insights and your phenomenal book with our community. Thank you, Mitch. It's, and thank you for this conversation. It's, um, personally, it's made me think a, a lot about all that I've found in travel, uh, which is so much, so much of my life. Same. It's so funny. Just even the power of conversation to unlock yeah. <laughs> within each other is <laughs> is unlimited. I mean, just in your last moment of talking about death, I thought about a moment as a guide when I was leading a tour group at the um, the Citadel Chapel in Charleston, South Carolina, and there was an open piano. And it's a group of elderly ladies that I was guiding. And I sat down at the piano just because I know how to play piano. Mm. And I played Amazing Grace and oh. um, everybody started singing. And oh. One woman in particular just broke uncontrollably down in tears, and yeah. um, um, you know it's a it's an emotional song, especially for that generation. But uh, yeah. at the end, she sh she shared the story that just before the trip, her mother had died, and that it had been a long, agonizing cancer. And her mother, during her her final days, said, "Most importantly, I want you to go on that trip. I don't care what. I don't want you to be at home grieving. I want you to go on that trip." And um, she said, "I'll be. I, I want I want to see the world through your eyes. I want you to see the world for me." And, yeah. um, the woman shared that the, wow. that song was, um, the last song played at her funeral is the song she played as she said goodbye to her mother. And, um, we were just a puddle of absolute tears, just that storytelling, that yeah. collective ritual, that yeah. sense of moment of, of heightened, uh, emo emotion that it, 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 it feels like it captured everything that you're, that you're speaking of and what, yeah. you know, and, and you never felt, you never felt, I never felt more alive. Yeah, that kind of moment, and how 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 human it is, and how how available it is, right? If we just think about this right. moment, so how available? What a perfect way to end this. And thank you again. Thank you, Mitch. It's been really fun. Uh -huh.